Cool. Thanks. Uh, thanks for being on the on the show, dude. Appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, most welcome. Um, yeah, you came up, uh, and I'm gonna quote someone we know uh, as a as a, I think he said smart bastard or brilliant bastard. Uh, oh shit! He said that the other day <laughs> when he was okay. on the podcast. <laughs> That's nice. So I was like, okay. We, and we were we were talking already uh, of having you on, but I said, okay, let's just make sure I get Vaughn on ASAP. Very um, cool. And I'll, I'll be I'll be putting out the Bowline podcast today. Actually, I recorded oh, uh, great. I recorded a show with uh, Christian, Eric, and Matt. Awesome. Um, I probably won't do that again. <laughs> probably won't have three guys on uh, plus me. Uh, you know, on video call, it's 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 the latency is a little too a little too slow sometimes. So we we. Yeah, we had some we had some, you know, fun fun uh over talking situations, but but the podcast is good and I and I think people need to hear what the the guys have to say, so it's exciting. It's going to be fun. Great. Um but I want to start off with um are you a game designer now? Is that what's happened recently? Cuz I'm not really a game designer, but uh, I'm joking. Let, let's, talk know, about, I, let's talk about let's talk about cuz you're doing so much and I think I want to just talk talk about the the most recent one first and then kind of go kind of go all over the place from there but why don't you t- why don't you talk about what the what the, what uh idk is or i don't know what is that yeah for sure um idk is uh this thing or at least th- this is a prototype which is unsatisfactory it needs to be rebuilt but uh no i'm not a game designer i think what it is is it's actually not really a game it's a tool right so i mean one of the things that i think about a lot is um how do you sort of force yourself outside of the comfort zone because it's only when you're outside of the comfort zone that you grow as a person you're able to learn new things and the problem is most of us don't really think about continuously pushing ourselves outside of the comfort zone very much uh, and honestly society is not really built to do that to you right so the idea was to try and build a tool that would in a fun way let you do that for yourself so it, it is a game but it's not a game that you play with other people yet it's a game that you play in a sense, against yourself. And if uh, you win, what happens is you become better at doing things that you don't know how to do yet, or at being in situations that you don't really understand how they will work yet, or wanting things that you don't really know that you want yet, which are all things that let us grow as people. We just don't really do that very much because it's hard, right? So it's not a game. It's kind of like a tool, self-development tool. I think, I think, I think what what's exciting to me about that is um, it's almost it's almost in, in the world these days when we have you know uncertainty might be might be the most most used or thought of word uh, at least if we don't call it uncertainty ambiguity not knowing what's going to happen this entire virus I mean <laughs> the entire globe's in a constant state of uncertainty in many ways right so I think and I think for many for many people that that is uh, a problem right it's not a good place to be uh and i think it's any anything that can help us get through this chasm of uncertainty if we call it that right chasm uh, of is, is helpful yeah, yeah you can you can take that i'll, I'll give you i'll give you that you can <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, uh, I i i totally agree i think the usually it seems like the biggest the, well not the biggest the most common reaction to being faced with a situation where you don't know what's going on is like you freak out uh, because it's like it's terrifying right we all like stability we like to know what's going on we like to know like what we want um, and when you're put in a situation where you don't know what's going on and sometimes you don't even know what you should want I, I think it can be very destabilizing so 
yeah, absolutely. Like, how, how do you get to the point where you are in one of those situations, but you're not freaking out, but you just know how to deal with it? I think that's sort of a, it's a thing that most of us don't, we're not trained to do it. We don't have many opportunities to learn how to do it. And so when something very uncertain shows up, like COVID or something, uh, most people just like freak out. They're, they're not ready, right? Not prepared for it. And being prepared for it yeah. is very important. Yeah. And and how did you end up sort of writing about uncertainty? Because you have, you have a book uh, which, which, which came out last year, right? 2020? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you time that? <laughs> no, I didn't time that. Actually, the, the timing was... <laughs> okay. I mean, um, it's almost like it's almost like a perfect storm. It's like you know, <laughs> I'm hoping yeah, the book almost. sales are doing well. <laughs> so if, it, we'll yeah, it's a, book, it's an but. interesting it's an interesting situation. So I I would say that I would have wanted the book to come out much earlier because it it, it actually went through a very uncertain path as well, right? Like the the topic is not one that people generally want to publish. Uh, nobody wants to read about uncertainty that I can tell, and so it was hard to find a publisher that really understood it. And it went through a lot of, uh, it went through many potential paths to getting into a book that didn't work before eventually I found a publisher that was interested in it and um, was enthusiastic about it. So it, no, it was not timed that way. It actually was delayed by about two years because uh, of an unfortunate event with a previous publisher. And then I had to like go find another one. But it turned out it came out at kind of, you know, not the perfect time, but a very appropriate time right to uh yeah. to think about what's uncertain um yeah so so what is what is the book about i mean because the title is quite clear but to talk about what the book actually yeah goes to. for sure so the the title of the book is the uncertainty mindset and essentially in a nutshell what the book is about is it's about a way of thinking about the world right that simply says actually the whole book can be summarized in one way in one single sentence which is you just have to be willing to admit to yourself first that you don't know what the future is going to be. That's it. And if you think about that, most of the time we don't admit that, right? Most of the time we think, oh, I don't know what the future will be, but I know it's going to be one of these things and I'm gonna plan for that. But in fact, actually, like if you ask any one of us in, I would say, middle of December, 2019, did we think that most of the world would be locked down for almost all of 2020? Like you wouldn't even have thought of that as a possible outcome, right? So the fact that we don't think about what would happen if the world is unknowable, as a matter of course, means that we don't, most of us, we don't have the uncertainty mindset. Now, if you do have the uncertainty mindset, and then this is what the rest of the book is about, um, if you do have the uncertainty mindset, then what you do is you tend to act very differently, right? So you don't do these really big bets that only pay out if they work exactly as you need them to work out. You tend to take smaller experimental steps where even if the step fails, you learn uh, anyway or you benefit in some way. And I think the, the big thing that really the book is trying to deal with is this idea that we always talk about risk and we talk about uncertainty and we use the two words interchangeably. It's as if there is no difference. But actually, there is a huge difference between risk and uncertainty, right? Like anyone in financial markets should know, should know. That risk is when you know all the possible outcomes, how likely each one of those outcomes is, and actually also how much you want each of them. Because only when you know all those three things can you decide, okay, I'm going to take the following actions to kind of mitigate my risk of this not happening or that happening. Like truly risk, if you really wanted to be very precise about it, barely exists, 
right? Like if you, you, it is risky when you throw like a pair of fair dice or when you flip a fair coin, that's risk. Like whether it comes up heads or tails, that coin, it's a 50-50 chance. So you can bet on that. But if you want to, I mean, if you want to talk about like, what is the risk of my startup succeeding? Or what is the risk of my restaurant staying open for the next two years? It's not risk. It's mostly uncertainty, right? And the problem is we don't think about how we act in a world that is uncertain differently from how we act in a world that is risky. And most of how we think about taking action, taking strategy, I, I teach strategy. Um, most of how we think about those things are built around the idea that you can know what the future will be. It's a risky world. It's not. Most of the time, the world is not risky. Most of the time, the world is uncertain. So that, that's what the book is about. It just talks about the difference between risk and uncertainty. It explains that uncertainty is something that you have to treat differently from risk. And that's the uncertainty mindset. And then there are a few things that you know you can concretely do, right? You can hire people in different ways so that you are better suited to be in an uncertain world. You can set goals for people and teams in different ways so that you're better suited for an uncertain world. And then most importantly, I think you can motivate people in different ways uh, so that they are better at being in uncertainty than they are at being in risk. And that's, all, that's what it's all about. Wow. I mean, I've never heard anyone put put it that way that's 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 funny yeah. to say but i think but i think it's it's really or put it put it so succinctly right like kind of just say that okay this is what risk is mm -hmm. this is what uncertainty is mm -hmm. and when it comes to risk it's almost i think what you said clearly the outcomes are known yes well, right the like possible all outcomes of, the possible outcomes. yeah all of the possible po all the possible outcomes mm -hmm. are known you yeah. know, and and then it's just a matter of applying how likely exactly. either of the outcomes yeah. is. Yeah, exactly. And uncertainty is unknown unknowns almost, right? It's actually it's, technically or, there's there's yeah, several different kinds of uncertainty, right? Like you can know some but not all the outcomes. That's one thing. You can know even all the outcomes, but you cannot know how likely each one of them is. And then of course you can not know what actions lead to what outcomes. You cannot know what actions are available to you. <laughs> and then I think the most important one is you cannot know how much you want all of the outcomes. Wow. Right? Because, it, I mean, all of these things, but the thing is, the moment you kind of lay them out, you know that it's true. Like, do you know whether or not you want to live in a country if you've never been to that country before? No, you don't. So how do you, how do you calculate like your you know, expected utility from living in that country if you've never been there? Right. That's a, that's a source of true uncertainty, but we don't think of it that way, even though we should, for instance. Yeah. Cool. No, I mean, that's that's definitely, you know, that's that's a very important point. But how how did you end up here now? I don't mean physically, but I mean, sort of, <laughs> yes, how did you uh, and we can talk about that in a second, because I love your Instagram we posts about, about where you're currently based. And that's uh, <laughs> yeah. that's amazing. But let's let's talk about that first, and let's come back to your career in a second because yeah. that's probably slightly more interesting. <laughs> uh, but um, how did you end up where you are, and why is it so pretty and beautiful? And what's your obsession with pizza all the time? So <laughs> it is a good question. So um, how did I end up where I am? So I I mean I I, I teach at UCL in London, um, but you know I I've been coming to so where I am currently is I'm in a part of France called the Auvergne. It's technically in the south of France, but it it's the mountainous bit, you know, there's a big volcanic plateau that's in the middle of France, the Massif Central. So 
I'm in the, I guess, the southeastern corner of that, um, in a very remote kind of little hamlet, I guess you would call it. Um, I, I've been coming to this part of France for the last maybe five or six years, um, because it's not like a very fancy place to be. It's not very touristy, but there are a bunch of interesting winemakers and just interesting places to you know hang out and primarily to eat. So I've been coming here uh, more or less every year, sometimes more than once a year. And it's really nice. It, it's so untouristed that there's really nothing to do that is touristic other than hike on the mountains or like go down the rivers or something. But yeah, I was thinking about trying to buy a really cheap house. And I thought sometime around August this year, uh, last year, that maybe London's not going to be so nice for the end of 2020. It turns out that was entirely correct. Maybe I should try and come to the middle of France because nothing's going to be open anyway. Might as well check it out. So I did that, and uh, it turns out that things got even worse everywhere than I thought. It was not possible to go back to London easily. It wasn't even possible to really leave France very easily. So I'm still here, and it turns out it's quite nice. It was quite cold for a few weeks, very, very cold for a few weeks. But the sun is shining, and they're spreading manure in the fields outside. So, you know, it's, it's very agricultural. That. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, yeah, but that, so I guess how I got here is I, I just wanted to be outside of a city, and this is an attempt yeah. to try and see if I could be outside of the city. Uh, and I think this is a bit connected to the question of pizza because, you know, th there's two reasons why the pizza is so interesting. One of them is pizza is delicious and you should try and find really good pizza. Uh, and it's really hard to find good pizza anywhere. Oh, right? so, oh believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a guy <laughs> called the Pizza Hacker. He's a, he's cool. a, he's a friend of my I wife know. and I. Uh, and I cool. You know yeah. who Pizza Hacker is? I, well, I don't know him, but I, I, I know of Pizza Hacker he's i mean like he was in copenhagen my wife was in san francisco um mm -hmm. a couple of years back uh, i think they were roommates flatmates yeah. or whatever you call it cool um and and he was just starting out his his uh yeah i think he was very early days and this guy is a bread gene i mean like a like a pizza <laughs> genius it's yeah. just I, I and he's such a cool dude uh i'm trying to i'm trying to find a time to have him on but the the time zones from san francisco to copenhagen yeah, are not, not, are not, the not easiest, ideal. so not ideal. Uh, but at some point he will be on and and uh, i'll definitely get some pizza knowledge from him but uh go on about your pizza, <laughs> about uh, your no, pizza uh, i mean i think pizza is just it all pizza is tasty but some pizza is great and over the years of eating a lot of pizza i i realized a lot of pizza I'm perfectly happy to eat, but doesn't make me feel good, right? Like, I think I'm very slightly intolerant of some kinds of wheat. So as I was eating all this pizza and all this bread, I love bread. I was realizing sometimes I eat the pizza, sometimes I eat the bread, and I feel terrible. I will still eat it because I love pizza. I love bread. But over time, I realized, you know, sometimes you eat the pizza or you eat the bread and you feel just fine. And eventually, I think this was probably starting about five or six years ago, I was like, maybe it's something about the flour or about the way the, the flour is turned into dough that, that, that's then turned into pizza. And that's a long rabbit hole that I've gone down. Um, and I think my conclusion eventually is that if I eat pizza or bread that's made from wheat that is quite old in terms of you know when it was developed, if it was not if it was developed before the 1900s, if that wheat is then stone milled and not roller milled, and if the flour from that is uh, long fermented with 
you know, generally a sourdough culture, which has lactic acid bacteria as well as yeast in it, instead of being quickly fermented with a clonal yeast, I can eat as much of it as I want and I feel fine. And if I don't, then I feel like shit. So there's something interesting going on there. And as a result, it's very hard to go out and eat pizza because now I know that I can make pizza myself that is actually quite good, doesn't make me feel bad. I can control all the ingredients that go inside it. Um, I don't really eat pizza very much, uh, but there are a few places in the world that make pizza the way I would want to make it myself, and they're extremely good. But I can do it myself as well. So that's why I'm interested in pizza so much. Um, Self-control, I think. <laughs> I think there's a bigger story there, and I have some I have some other um, acquaintances and people that I, I follow who are yeah. who are you know great at what they do and also happen to love to make pizzas and i was like okay what's going on? something <laughs> here there's 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 uh there's there's a, one of the founders of an app um um it's 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 one of the more popular uh kind of uh editing apps cut that damn it the name is escaping me right now shit this is annoying Descript. um no. No, no, no. The script is new, um, yeah. but this is this is quite old. Oh my God, he's okay. gonna kill me. Uh, he, <laughs> anyway, it's it's. Uh, I don't want to say the competitor's name because he's gonna really kill me then. Uh, but the competitor's name is in my head right now. <laughs> but uh, anyway, enough. so he and he's he's he started this app a long time ago. I think I think two thousand eight, maybe nine. Well, he's mm -hmm. one of the first uh, guys to do it, and he lives in the Hague. And his fa his co-founder is in Portugal, and the company is totally distributed. Okay, and, cool. Like. You would never know this guy has one of the coolest tech startups in the world. Never raised right. any money, right? Yeah. Used by millions of designers around the world. Cool. And, and he loves pizza as well. And I was like, okay, Amazing. what's happening? It's like all, all these interesting stories around, and pe around people sort of taking control of a certain yeah. aspect of what they eat or consume. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of enjoyable. I'm, I'm, I'm like that with coffee and I'm, I'm quite nerdy about coffee. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, there's definitely an attraction to that. Um, talking about your career, because you, I mean, it seems like you've been to all the cool cool schools and <laughs> you're teaching oh, at a really cool one, school right now. Yeah, only one cool school, but that's a, it's a pretty cool school. Uh, it's a cool and, school. And, and, and so tell me about sort of your journey from, is it Singapore that you're originally it from? It is definitely uh, Singapore. Yeah. 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 So, so tell me the journey from Singapore to, you know, sorry, say again. No, no, it, it, it's, it's cool. It, it, it was an interesting journey. Um, I, I think the, the main thing to say about it is a, a lot of it was really dumb luck, right? Uh, I'm, I'm from a, I'm from a family that is not very wealthy. Like we, you know, if we are even middle class in Singapore, I would be very surprised. I, I think we're, we're actually lower than middle class by quite a bit. So it, you know, in, in Singapore, when I was growing up, there were, at that time, possibly only two real universities that you could go to. Now there are more. Um, and as a result, you had to do very, very well in the A-level exams, which you probably know about, in order to be able to go into one of these Singaporean universities, right? So Can we just, can we just take a second about A-levels? What, <laughs> what, what, what were your A-level subjects? Uh, what were they? History? Do you remember? I was yeah, no, I, I, okay, I'm trying too. to think about them actually. History, economics, one of the maths. I mean, they, they must. Um, what were they? <laughs> and literature, maybe. I, I, I was like yeah, one I of those humanities guys. Yeah. Yeah, me too, me too. But funny, no, because I, I, yeah, I love, uh, 
I meet very few people who've done A-levels, so I get excited about any other yeah, fellow sure. A-level people. Yeah. But go on. So after your A-levels, yeah, A-levels no, was so, kind so of the, you, yeah. You have to do really, really well to get into the good universities. And for whatever reason, you know, I, I did okay in the A-levels, but I didn't get like a, dub, a double distinction in my S papers or something. So I, I couldn't get into the, the Singapore universities. And so because you have to do the national service in Singapore, I, I just applied to U.S. universities. I couldn't afford to go to most of them, except for the ones that had financial aid. And so uh, I applied to all of the financial aid ones, and I didn't get in the first time. But because I was in the army, I applied three times, right? I, I got to apply three years. So I didn't get in anywhere the first year. I didn't get in anywhere the second year. And the third year, I finally got in to one place that... I, well, I got into two places that, that third year. Um, both places offered me a, basically a free ride. And that was the only reason I got to go, because otherwise there's no way I would have been able to afford it. <laughs> so the the journey was like, you know, otherwise I maybe would not have gone to. No, actually, that's unlikely. I, I, I was about to say maybe I wouldn't have gone to university. I would have probably gone to some university somewhere and found a way to make it happen. But um, in the nick of time, someone gave me essentially not a scholarship. They, they just they basically give you a loan and then a grant to, to make it up. Um, and that's great. Like that's, that was one of the best things that's happened to me, which is really cool for sure. So I basically only went there because I couldn't get into anywhere in Singapore. And I only got to go there after applying three times because the first two times I didn't get in. And then the third time, for some reason, they were like, okay, fine. I, mean, I used the same application. It was a photocopy of the same application all three years. But the third time they were like, yeah, sure. Come on over, we'll give you some money. I mean, I, I worked and took out loans and stuff along the way. But uh, yeah, it was an amazing opportunity. I did, I, I wanted it really badly, but I never expected that I would get to go. So it was very cool. So what did you study? What, what, um, were your, what, was, your, what a, was your academic career like? The academic career. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so Har I mean, Harvard you're still in a, it kind of to a certain extent. I'm still, yeah. I'm still in it. I, I'm a very unconventional academic, I guess. But uh, at, at Harvard, they, they have an undergraduate concentration called social studies, which sounds like something you do in high school. But it is essentially, you know, a combination of a bit of economics, a bit of sociology, a bit of history. You, you kind of basically develop it the way you want. Um, and that's what I did as an undergrad. But as an undergrad also, because it's liberal arts, you get to do a lot of other weird stuff. So I took a lot of classes in um, what essentially was Harvard's art department, the visual and environmental studies department. Um, I took a bunch of classes in biology. Um, I took a, a bunch of classes in art history and they were all really fun. So I, I think the kind of, the weird mongrel aspect of how I think about stuff, which is, you know, take ideas from everywhere it comes from having been trained by people from all sorts of different disciplines who have different assumptions about what knowledge needs to be and how you'd get it. Uh, and that was only possible in a liberal arts program. Like I, I think if I'd gone to one of, so if I, so right now I teach at a UK university where there is no real concept of liberal arts where you force people to learn out of many different epistemological traditions. Uh, I think it's a real, I mean, there are many advantages to focused learning Right, you get more content, but the major disadvantage is that you don't get exposed to different ways of thinking, and that's something which I think is a real downside. You know, so I benefited a lot from learning from all these amazing people, like really, really amazing faculty, uh, who 
all had very different assumptions about what knowledge is and how you get it. And so that was fun. And it makes you think in totally different ways. And I think if you don't have that experience, you just think in a fundamentally different, more like linear fashion, which is not necessarily bad. It's just different. Yeah. And I think part of also what's uh, I, I didn't I didn't get to go to a liberal liberal arts college either. And and, and I think for me, uh, my sister did. She went to a university, uh, a, a university in, 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 Ut in Utrecht in, in Holland, which uh, cool. has a really good liberal, liberal arts program. I think the only yeah. one in the country that does it. It's kind of based on the American system a little bit. Oh, and okay. cool. and and it's and it's really interesting to sort of uh, I remember just looking, going to visit her once. Right. And just kind of sitting in a class or two. Mm -hmm. And I was studying business uh, mm -hmm. economics uh, in university yeah. and I and I and I found it just boring. Just it was just it was good. I, I loved some of the classes, mm -hmm. but I just was like, oh, I wish I could just study psychology for fun. Like that would be nice. <laughs> yes. You know, and I just sort of I would just, you know, read books in psychology because I was interested in it myself mm -hmm. and, and email uh, professors of other universities just ask them questions about their book and they're like who is awesome. this random guy from business school <laughs> emailing us yeah and and i think when i went to uh when i went to visit my sister a couple of times in her university i think that's when the spark kind of came to say oh wow people actually thought about putting these you know different subjects together and letting people actually and i think you said it really well teaching people how to think and there's yeah. there's so much of that uh, especially in our current media climate that is really lacking, mm -hmm. right? And I think part of also what I want to try to accomplish in my very small way with this podcast is to bring on a variety of individuals uh, and groups mm -hmm. at times just to sort of talk about different things, you know, because there is there is so much nuance that is lost in our, in our you know, mm -hmm. tweet instagram yes. culture um yeah for sure um where where i feel like i just want to sit down and talk with somebody and i mean I, you know you and i we we connected because of uh, because of bowline which yeah. was which is awesome but i think you know there's just so many things to get into that is interesting mm -hmm. about you to me and if someone if someone thinks it's interesting great if they don't fuck off you know whatever i don't care i agree and completely I think, yes <laughs> It, it doesn't have think, to get 10,000 likes for it to be worth. I, I, I mean, it, it will not get 10,000 likes. For sure. There's exactly, a guarantee. Exactly. Yeah. But, but so, and I think that, and I think when sort of you change the incentive in a way, it's like the incentive is just to have a conversation. Right. And, and mm -hmm. if, and if, uh, if someone, if someone, I, I was trying to, I was trying to get a guest on and, and, uh, and she was asking me all these questions, you know, what is the show about? Uh, you know, a lot of specifics, you know, tell me how many listeners you have and everything. And then I'll judge if it makes sense for me to come on. I'm like, hey, I, I think you're really smart. I think I'd love to talk to you. Um, yeah. I have no listeners. Uh, you know, there's like hardly any downloads per episode. Uh, and I, I, I'm not focused only on your industry. I just think, you know, I read a couple of blog posts you wrote and I and I yeah. started reading your book and it was really interesting. I'd love to have you on. Um, and and oh i'm sorry no you have to go through my pr people okay that's fine you know <laughs> i don't need to yes. have anybody on i and i think and, and to me what's what's fun is that with 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 individuals kind of going back to the liberal arts a little bit or just learning how to think a little bit right there's 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 this weird um what do you call a sort of currency given to something a couple of guys in silicon valley created right like it's just like likes mm -hmm. and retweets and yeah 
it's just like sure. that's not real that's not the real world right like it's absolutely it, it is to a certain extent in some ways but it's you also don't don't have to sort of uh, make that part of your identity right and i think for me it's mm -hmm. also i'm attracted to individuals who are just yeah, who try to think a little differently uh and and you know are doing something which maybe doesn't make sense from the outside but then when yeah. you dig a little deeper it's actually yes. quite interesting no, totally. uh, have, now from uh, on that note why are you involved in food <laughs> what is your connection with the food industry because because there's there's a pretty interesting connection there right how did that all that how did all that come about well i, I mean i I, so I've always been very interested in it because it is delicious or can be very delicious. But my connection to food is, you know, I, I spent the, the book is actually about restaurants. So I, you know, the, the, the book is basically exactly. it, it's like here is a theory about why we should think about risk and uncertainty differently and how thinking about uncertainty differently leads you to act differently in ways that are good for you. Right. So that, that's the book. But the way I figured it out is by watching people who do it. So. I ended up um, I ended up spending a really long time physically with some of these restaurants. Um, like, you know, I, I was with the Fat Duck, Modernist Cuisine, The Cooking Lab, uh, Jose Andres' amazing restaurant team, which are some of the best R&D chefs I've ever met. And then one that I cannot name, uh, as well as the MAD organization. And, you know, all of these all of these groups are coming up with new ideas in food in some way or another. Sometimes it's a dish, sometimes it's a way of cooking, sometimes it's the idea for a community, which is what Matt did. And I guess my involvement in food comes from thinking about them as a place where thinking about food, especially at the high end cutting edge part of food, as an industry where honestly, there is a lot of innovation going on. Like, you know, if you look at industries that innovate, there are, I mean, now everyone talks about innovation everywhere, but in truth, there's really not that much true innovation going on, except in some industries. Like there are going to be some industries in their timelines or their, I guess, the life cycle of an industry. There, It will go through an innovation phase and then sometimes it'll just stop innovating, right? And for whatever reason, in the last two decades, food has been one of those places. It, it may be tapering off a little bit now, but when I was looking at it starting in about 2010, 2011, uh, well, actually, I started looking at it in about 2008, concretely. Uh, it was definitely the place where you would look. If you wanted to see an industry where new shit was happening all the time, that's where you would go, right? So um, I was always interested in it because if you're a Singaporean, you eat a lot, and that's part of the national culture, so I, I cared about it. And then when I started thinking about it from an organizational sociology perspective, it became really clear to me that if you want to go understand teams that come up with new ideas, you've got to go find teams that do come up with new ideas. If you want to understand how they do it, you've got to go find teams that do it all the time so that you can see it happening repeatedly. And that's my explanation for why I'm going to look at restaurants, right? Like restaurants do it all the time. So if you want to understand teams that innovate and how they get organized, you might as well go look at teams that are innovating in a way that you can see how they're organized to do it all the time. Because you could go look at a microchip foundry and see how they innovate, but then your cycle time is like 18 months. But if you want to understand how a restaurant's innovating, you can go look at them and then their cycle time might be, sometimes they finish a dish component or a whole dish in like a day or four days or six days. And you can see a lot of it happening over and over again. So, but, uh, so I think that's so the sort this of technical the... reason why. Yeah, and, 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 and I think I just want to sort of double click on that a little bit. So 
for, was it 2008 was it you said that you were yeah first interested so, in it, right and and was that was that for for some for for something you were doing at harvard or something you were doing it at uh your you know yeah other universities uh, right, right. Absolutely. So I think before that, I had already been interested in food as a sort of a way, you know, like that if you're a, if you're a social scientist, like I, I'm a sociologist by training. If you're a sociologist by training, what you try and do is you try and find a place to try and understand something that is going on so that you can apply that understanding to other places. Right. And I've always been interested in a few sets of things. One of them is how you organize teams of people, because I I like teams that work really well. And then another thing that I've always been interested in is how do ideas spread? So I originally got into understanding food um, as not just something to eat, but a way to understand something bigger. When I was actually an undergrad and I was writing uh, a long research piece about how Japanese food became haute cuisine in America. Because that actually, I mean, now that we, you know, today around the world, if you ask what are the national cuisines that are fine, you always get French, you always get Japanese. The other cuisines, actually, there are no other cuisines that almost everywhere people will say are haute cuisine, right? And so the interesting thing is French cuisine has been haute cuisine since forever, like for hundreds of years. Japanese cuisine well, they came up haute, with They came up they, with I mean, the word, they, yeah, right? They, they, came, they came up haute, with the word. Haute cuisine, so... Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, Japanese cuisine has only been fine dining, I don't know, since 1980. And very few people know that, right? So because nowadays it's, it's so obviously fine dining. And so the question was, how did it happen? It happened actually within the space of about two years. So how did that happen? So that, that, that's a whole story. I, I'm, I'm trying to get someone to like publish a book on this because I, I have the book on it. I just, wanted, I, I just wanted to publish it. But I got interested in that then. And then when I went back to grad school, because, you know, I, I took a few years out to work at Google and then I went back to grad school. When I went back to grad school, I was supposedly interested in how you organize innovation teams. That, that was what I, I went back to, to learn. And along the way, I was like, mm, maybe I could go study an innovation team at, like, for example, a microchip foundry. But I was really lucky. Uh, one of very early in my time in grad school, this was probably 2000 and this was actually probably 2008, in fact, or maybe early 2009. Uh, there was a lecture series at Harvard in the engineering school about the, I mean, technically it's the physics of soft matter, right? But they taught it by bringing in all these amazing chefs because a lot of cooking is the physics of soft matter. <laughs> so they brought in people wow. like, like Ferran, they brought in like a, actually a lot of Spanish chefs because of the Ferran connection. Um, and Jose Andres was the introducer for one session and pre presented one session and he had office hours. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll go to office hours and talk to Jose Andres. This is fun. And when I was there, because I was already thinking about what my dissertation research would be just for fun. I asked him, Jose, you know, I'm really interested in innovation teams. And you mentioned during your talk that you've got an R and D team. He calls it the think food tank. So I was like, will you let me come like hang out with your R and D team and see how they work? And I was expecting him to say no. And then he was like, uh, maybe. Why don't you come to breakfast tomorrow and tell me what you want to do? So I was like, oh, this is interesting. Okay, so I, I went for breakfast with him and actually um, Ruben Garcia and Aitor Lozano, they were both there as well. They, they were both at the time core members of Jose's R&D team. 
So went there, I had breakfast with him. It actually was like a two and a half hour breakfast. It was like super interesting. I don't remember what we ate, but it was a really interesting conversation because when we were talking about what that whole team does, the Think Food Tank does, it reminded me a lot of the R&D teams that I used to work at at Google. And so this was the first time I thought, oh, there may be something really interesting here, right? They organize themselves in ways that a lot of people in conventional management would say, you shouldn't do it this way, it won't work. And yet it works really, really well. I saw this at Google as well. This is why I left to go back to grad school to understand how teams work in unconventional ways that are better. And so after breakfast, Jose was like, fine, I guess if you want to come hang out with us for a week, you can. Like we have a, you know, we don't really have a lab. We just have a team that's based in DC. You can come hang out with us. So I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I went down and I had an incredible week just you know, I, I was like the human traffic cone in the kitchen because I had no idea where to stand. I was always in the way, but they were really nice. And at the end of the week, I was like, mm, I want to come back and I want to spend more time like concretely observing how you interact inside the R&D team itself and in the rest of the organization. And so they were like, OK, fine, you can come back. And actually, we're opening they're actually opening three restaurants at the same time in Vegas. And if you want to come there, you can come and you can watch what we do. So I did that, too. And along the way. I got introduced by Harold McGee to the team at the Fat Duck. They eventually said, yeah, you can come um, hang out with us for a bit. Uh, I happened to be at a conference in Copenhagen. And at that time, it was still possible to email Rene Redzepi and get a response. <laughs> Nowadays, it's harder. Um, and email Peter Kreiner and get a response. And so I, I emailed them incessantly. And eventually, I, I think I just wore them down. They were like, yeah, fine, come, come meet. I, I met Rene for the first time, um, probably 2002. 10, I would say, maybe 2010, he was like, okay, fine, I, I guess maybe I will consider having you come hang out with us for a bit, but send me a proposal. I mean, eventually through lots of, you know, emailing and stuff, they were like, fine, if you want to come spend a few months with us, uh, you can. So that's what I did in, I think, 2011. I, I, I always get the dates wrong. But, you know, the, the, the path of getting into these places was slow. But once I got into one, once I got into Think Food Tank, I realized something interesting is going on here. They all organize themselves in ways that if you were a traditional management consultant or management professor, you would say this would not work. The reason why they do it is because at that time, very few of them had gone to business school. right? So they had not been contaminated by conventional management thinking. And they were organizing themselves in ways that exactly have the uncertainty mindset. You know, they don't assume that they know what the future is going to be like. They don't assume that they know what they want out of the future. They're simply saying, I don't know, things are changing. Let's figure things out along the way. That, that's basically it. And all of them were doing that. Um, and so eventually I got to the Fat Duck Experimental Kitchen. I got to the cooking lab, which does modernist cuisine. Um, I eventually got to MAD. I talked to Noma, Think Food Tank, all of them let me come in and hang out with them for varying periods of time. This is actually also how I met Christian because I was in Copenhagen for a long time and kept coming back to, to work on MED um, and also Matt uh, Orlando. Um, but yeah, it, it was kind of gradually figuring out that these teams in food were organized in super interesting ways that frankly, other teams not in food that want to innovate should be organized as as well but nobody knows. <laughs> so um, my dissertation was about that. And then the book is a complete rewrite of the dissertation to make it not boring. Very cool. And I think what, what, st <clears throat> what stands out to me is that I, 
I've only experienced uh, the Copenhagen restaurants you mentioned um, by having eaten at them, uh, having having been lucky to eat at them at least at least once, um, and pre-pandemic, of course. Uh, and and I think to me, what's really interesting is that I'll just I mean I haven't I haven't talked about my Noma experience uh, on, on air ever, so I think it's it's worth bringing it up once. I was. There, I think we were there for my wife's birthday. I think a couple of years ago. I forget the date as well. But I remember just it was for the seafood season, and I remember mm. being there in the new Noma, uh, in the new location. And I think just kind of eating the food and drinking the wine, and realizing I've never had this experience before anywhere. I cannot relate it to anything else. Yeah. And I think that has happened in, 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 in sort of the category of restaurant experiences very rarely in my life. Because, you know, I've, you can go to a really nice uh, restaurant in New York, in, in, in Paris, uh, anywhere in the world. And there will be something that reminds you of another place, you know, some, some aspect of the meal, yeah. the music, the, the furniture. And, it, and I just couldn't, I couldn't. I couldn't think of it. how was Noma. It was it was Noma. <laughs> like, yeah. It's difficult to kind of compare it to anything else. Uh, yeah. And I think there's a, there's restaurants around the world doing that. And I would also put sort of what Amas is doing in the same boat. You know, they're mm -hmm. doing some amazing stuff. And yeah. when you go into Amas, it's this mixture of you know hip hop meets fine dining meets Copenhagen meets you know sustainability. And you were like, Matt is a bloody genius. You know, in what he does. And the team yeah. is doing some amazing stuff. What Kim is doing with the, uh, you know, Amas Food Lab and everything, yeah. is just uh, there's just so many interesting things they're doing. And I think, you know, it makes sense that they have great teams. It makes sense that they do it in an interesting way. You know, great. I, by great, I mean great for the for creating interesting stuff, innovating on you know uh, on 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 what they're doing. And it was yeah. funny because. And I, and I think, of course, like uh, we talked about in the Bowline podcast uh, with, with the guys, you know, there's also a lot of issues with the food industry and restaurant industry, you know, where like, sure. the business Absolutely. model is is 100 plus years old. The way things are done outside of this sort of creative space of, of, of you know, creating the food and the creating the menus and the service. There's a lot that's very old school and there's there's a lot that could be improved and should be improved potentially or innovated uh, you know, for the new world we live in now. Mm. Um and I think that's actually what you and I connected on a little bit because yeah. I remember uh, I remember when when I think you you were also chiming in by was it Zoom or Skype uh, in one of the meetings I think it was it was I think it was at Amas we were doing this uh, session and I had been saying some stuff similar to what you were saying and I was like oh finally someone else was <laughs> talking about similar stuff yeah. to me because I'm the I'm not the food guy and I'm just saying guys can we try to come up with you know different things and yeah. and I think. And I think it's it's also it is funny because yes you know clearly they're innovative in the category of creating you know amazing experiences sensory yeah. food uh, spatial all that but there's aspects of the restaurant industry that are clearly in need of reexamination mm -hmm. and ne in need of you know figuring it out and I had I had yesterday I had uh, uh, Daniel Giacopelli he um, he's um, I think he's one of the managing editors of a, of a magazine in London called Courier, and, oh, cool. and they're yeah, they're doing awesome. some amazing they're doing some amazing stuff. And, and he was on the he was on the podcast. I said he's one of my podcasting heroes. I don't want to make him feel bad, but 
uh, he he had a he had a really famous podcast back in the day which i used to listen to all the time so it was awesome having cool. him on but we talked about um you know these ghost kitchens and all these new categories kind of appearing in the restaurant industry right in the yeah. food industry if we call it and and there's negative sides to it but to me it's also you know m- more the reason to say let's create more like mm-hmm. i mean I- in singapore and in, in india as well i i haven't really been to singapore but I, i have a lot of friends that are from there so i have yeah. I, i kind of have heard you know all the amazing types of food you can get you can get yeah. street food you can get a variety of things you can get stuff that's less than a dollar you can get stuff that's you know worth mm-hmm. thousands of dollars right and i think yeah. what i sometimes feel is that that's how it should be there should be mm-hmm. different categories of products that you yeah. can buy and consume and get different things for and and a great restaurant experience should be valued for what it's worth yeah, you know and, and i think and i think the the margins need to be there so i think there's a lot of hope hopeful change that will come after the pandemic or it has to because you know clearly restaurants yeah. are not going to be the same what yeah. do you think about that um no i i, I totally agree i, I think Well, one thing which I actually also write about in the book is that when we think about innovation in restaurants, generally what we think about is innovation at the level of the dish, right? So this is maybe partly because of social media where the dish is the easiest thing to show what is innovating, right? So you take a photograph and it's very Instagram worthy or whatever, it's uh, it's grammable. Um, I think people overemphasize dish level innovation. I think where the really interesting innovation in the restaurant industry needs to come is in terms of like process and business model. And nobody really thinks about that as something to pursue other than the ones who are already doing it because that's what they do anyway. Right. So if you think about the really successful restaurateurs, they're the ones who come up with a business model that really works for them that maybe doesn't exist anywhere else. Right. So when I say business model, I I mean, we'll, we'll use a really good example, which is um, the cooking lab, which produces modernist cuisine. So Nathan Mirvold has this idea to try and build enough knowledge about sous vide so that he can just do sous vide himself. Eventually doing all this research, he realizes it's actually probably a book. There's so much knowledge that you, you got to do. Hire some people to help write this book. In doing all this research, they realize actually, holy shit, it's not just one book. It's not just about sous vide. It's actually about the science of cooking. So what eventually works out is this five volume book, right? But what I think a lot of people maybe don't realize, it's not a secret. It's that nobody wanted to publish Modernist Cuisine. Because if you think about this book before it came out, who who in the publishing world would understand that there was a demand that was forming for this kind of book very few people in fact no one um and so if you think about the cost of developing the ip that's in modernist cuisine which is a lot the expense of producing the book because you know it's like the book is also difficult to produce it's very big in terms of form factor the photographic reproduction inside is actually really interesting and requires specific equipment as well. Publishers just weren't willing to take the risk. And actually, if you think about it, the way the publishing industry works is you get a really small royalty. Most of the value of the book when it's sold goes to the publisher or to the retailer. And so the really interesting thing about modernist cuisine is that not only does it produce a product that is new, 
you know, it's the first compilation in a practically usable form of a lot of scientific knowledge that had been acquired over decades before. So that's new. But the really interesting thing about modernist cuisine is it represents a completely new business model for publishing books as well. Because what Nathan did was he vertically integrated basically the entire process. Um, the production was sourced by the cooking lab. You know, so they found a printing press. They may even have invested in it. I, I'm not sure about that part. But everything from, everything from printing up, you know, all of the pre-press production, all of the content, all of the editing, all of that was done in-house. And all the marketing is done in-house too. The only thing that they use out of house that is conventional is the printing and the distribution. And so every copy of Modernist Cuisine that you buy, most of the revenue goes to the cooking lab. They've built a completely new business model that they are now using for all of their other products. This is the innovation there as well, but nobody talks about it, right? So, you know, that's the example for books, but restaurants should be thinking, what is my business model and how do I innovate that? while also maybe innovating on ingredients, which is what people like Noma do, innovating at the level of the dish, which is what lots and lots of restaurants do. What, what about innovating at the level of the business process? How do we make the thing that we currently do better, more efficient, more fun, less wasteful? Like there are so many different ways of thinking about innovation and it seems really strange that we all only focus on the dish and not all of this other stuff, which is so much more important. But, I, and, I, and so just I to go back to what you're saying, in the future, Restaurants should be thinking not just about innovating at the level of the dish, but also innovating primarily at the level of the business model so that you can get exactly the kind of thing you're talking about, which I love about Singapore, which is the idea that there are business models where, and this is true in Japan as well, you can make a very viable business by selling a single product for not that much money because you are doing it very efficiently and you've got an amazingly dedicated audience, customer base that really wants that particular product. That's a business model and it could work. You just got to figure out how to make it work. And then that's innovation. I couldn't agree more. And I think part of also what really excites me, because in a way that's what I have done in my entire career. I've been building startups since I was whatever, 18, 19. And, and that's, that's business model innovation is a big part of a startup. It's, it's kind of like coming up on the fly. Um, how to come create a product create value <laughs> find customers uh scale it and, and do it in the most uh, effective way with as small a team as possible uh unless you raise venture and then go crazy once you figured out product market fit and then you and there's and i think and i think to me what's in a funny way because i have very limited experience with other industries outside of the very small bubble of building software and scaling sort of tech software a little bit of hardware products um, I almost think it's like everyone should work in that sort of mindset. And I think it's it's super important that, um, you know, examples, examples like what you mentioned earlier um, in the publishing, like sort of the, disrupting the publishing industry for that, for, you know, the, the, the one book. Uh, I think I think that's awesome. And I think also looking back at kind of where I was brought up in India, it is very similar sort of echoes to what, what happens in Singapore. You know, there's this one person who's in his 80s making this one dish that you, there's a line around the corner for and people are packaging it and sending it to Dubai, <laughs> you know, because it's so popular. And I think, uh, and I think that's, that's, um, that's, it's, I think it is happening in various, I mean, you see it happening in so many industries now. 
Uh, and I think there's only a matter of time it's going to come uh, to the restaurant industry as well. Um, I think what I want to what I want to talk about a little bit now is also a little bit of the work you do in the business consulting side, because you're doing, because you're also kind of involved. I mean, you're a professor at UCL. What is it that you teach exactly? And what, you know, what is, what is, what is that part of your career, so to speak? Yeah. I, so Cause you, you still I, teach, right? Or I, yeah, I, I do. I mean, I'm well today, not today, but I'm still in term, right? So, I think, so what I teach at UCL is I, I teach strategy and entrepreneurship. The, the classes I teach are about um, using design theory, not design of objects, but how we think about design as a, as a practice um, to make better strategy, right? So I teach a PhD seminar on strategy and design. I teach an undergrad class on um, strategy by design. So that, that's what I do. Um, I'm part of the UCL School of Management. You know, it's a new management school that's now, I think, like seven years old. I was one of the founding faculty there. But uh, the business consulting stuff that I do, I did some work for restaurants, helping them build innovation teams or kind of make their innovation teams work better. And I think what I'm doing now for businesses that are not restaurants is a big part of my research so far, which came out of the restaurant stuff, is thinking about goal setting in very different ways. So what I do now for um, businesses is I help them, I help them understand their goals by understanding what things they're willing to give up to achieve the things they're trying to get. And I, I have a big problem. So when I was at Google, and actually because you, you work in tech, you know that there is kind of this idea that you set goals by doing OKRs, right? You know, objectives and key results. And the OKR process you know, Google uses it, many, many companies in Silicon Valley use it. The OKR process is always an incredibly long drawn out process that's really expensive in terms of time. It takes up weeks and weeks of company time at the entire company level. It's incredibly expensive. And I am of the opinion that for the most part, it is useless. Um, most of the time, what happens when you set goals the conventional way is you set very clearly defined goals and you have very concrete outcomes that tell you whether or not your goal was achieved. If you think about it even a little bit, just logically, if you're trying to be innovative, you don't know what the outcome is. How can you therefore set a goal around it? It's just not logical. And so why bother spending all this time doing something which is completely pointless? First thought. Then the second thought is most of the time what you really want to know is not what you're trying to achieve in a very concrete sense, what you're trying to know is what you're trying to achieve broadly so that when you are innovating, when you find something that fits in that big bucket, you know that you've succeeded, right? Saying, I want it to be exactly this means that you're not really innovating anymore. But if you say, I want it to be maybe somewhere in here, that way, when you're innovating, you're just saying, okay, I'm going to try and make something that's in here. I don't know exactly what it is yet, but when I find one of them, I know it's in there. So that's the second thing. The third thing is, what you're really trying to do truly is understand what you're willing to give up to get what you're trying to get. So for instance, if you are a company that is, let, let's say you're Patagonia, you know that one of the things you're trying to do is design all these new products, right? Because Patagonia actually is a product company. No matter what they say about environmental sustainability, they exist to sell stuff, which is fine. But they know that they're not willing to trade off some things. And some of those things include they're not willing to produce things that are actively damaging the environment if they can do it better. Right. So what that does is that's a trade off that they know they're not willing to make. 
they are willing to make a trade-off, which is I think they're willing to make less money per product because obviously the way they make it, which is more sustainable, is going to cost them more. And so they can accommodate all those trade-offs in different ways they're creative because they're explicit about what those trade-offs are. The problem with most goal setting is that goal setting exercises always tell you, say what you are going to try and achieve. It doesn't say what you're willing to sacrifice to achieve it. And if you don't say what you're willing to sacrifice to achieve something, you don't know where the guardrails are. You don't know where the side of the road is so that you know where the road is, right? So what I end up doing for companies now is I help them. It's usually a very sort of like, I, I usually show up and I am the asshole because I force people to say, okay, it's great that you want to do this. What are you willing to give up to do that, right? And then in the course of doing that for the senior management team or whatever, you invariably realize that people always use the same words to describe things but they mean very different things with the same word, right? So everyone in your senior management team can say, we are aiming for growth. But if you ask each one of them, if you ask the CFO, what are you willing to give up to achieve growth? If you ask the CTO, what are you willing to give up to achieve growth? If you ask the CIO, what are you willing to give up to achieve growth? They give you all these completely different answers so that you know that actually they all say growth, but they all mean totally different things. Once you get all the trade-offs, out on the table, then you can really talk about what you're really trying to achieve. And that's the hard part. So that, that's what I end up doing for a lot of them now. Um, but it's mostly just, you know, clear thinking, right? I, I usually don't have very long um, consulting arrangements. I just show up and help them think clearly for a bit. And then I, I, I piss off again, which is fun. And I think it's, it's so important, right? Because these days, most of what we do is try, or not, not everybody, of course, but uh, there's a lot of sort of clear thinking that's needed and so many times we get lost in these labels or dogmas and, and it's kind of like okay you know uh, I, I've definitely <laughs> fallen in that same uh, in that same ditch so to speak right I, I've definitely said oh yeah I want growth as, as uh, CEO of the company or as the founder uh, or as the head of marketing or whatever uh, different titles I've had um, and it's true like you don't think about the trade-off and at the end of the day you do end up realizing that is that kind of exactly as you put it goes with if you want to get the if you want to get to the goal you have to give something up to get there it makes makes sense and i think seth godin um this really famous marketing uh, writer uh blog i mean awesome guy he um he said something which was about i think emotional pain for creators so you have to go through emotional pain to yeah. put something out there in the world Mm -hmm. And it was so eloquently put. I said, that's true. Like, go towards the pain. And if you know what you're willing to suffer, what yeah. you're willing to endure to put something out in the world, then it, the, it becomes a lot easier. You're not dependent on an external source to validate your reason for doing something. Yeah. You're on your path and you're willing to give you're willing to live with this much pain mm -hmm. uh, to achieve whatever you want to achieve. And that's I think uh, it, it's something that's so important. Um, yeah. No, no yeah. doubt there. So, yeah. yeah, I think the the emotional pain part. I would actually say that it, it is emotional pain, but the specifics of it are that we always want to get the stuff, and we never want to give stuff up to get it, and that's just not realistic, right? Like the the reality of the world is just resources are not infinite, your time is not infinite, and you have to sacrifice some things to get the thing that you really want. And so you might as well just be clear about what it is that you're willing to sacrifice because usually what that does is it clarifies what you actually want to get, 
right? So many people say that they want to, I don't know, make a lot of money, have a big salary. But once you ask yourself what you're willing to give up to get that, there are many people who have enormous salaries, but they have no family life, they have no time for themselves, their health is terrible. Are you willing to sacrifice all those things to get a massive salary? Maybe, maybe not. If you are, it's probably actually quite a big salary. If you aren't, then you have to either adjust your expectations about what your goal is or adjust your expectations about what sacrifice you're willing to make to achieve the goal. Which, by yeah, the way, and, and, is and, the reason why this exists also. Yeah, and I, I was going to say you should write a book on it, but clearly you're ahead of me there. You're building done. a whole system. <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah. but I, and I think and I think there's I think there's definitely there's so much here that. You know, doesn't get talked about, and I think that's why it's exciting to sort of um, I would love to dive a little deeper into it. I don't want to say where you came up with the idea, but where did you first kind of realize in your mind that this was a happening and you need to sort of talk about this more? This sort of trade-off between goals and and people not realizing they have to give something up to achieve these goals. Because it's true. Everything you said is true. I yeah. agree. So I, I think the, the, the thing is, I would not claim that I came up with the idea of trade-offs because I, I didn't. In fact, Michael Porter no, no. is... Uh, yeah, and I think it's important to point out why this is the case, right? So Michael Porter makes a really good point, which is that strategy is all about, well, not all about, strategy is a big part of strategy is about understanding your own trade-offs. The problem is nobody takes this particular aspect of strategy seriously. <laughs> so I, I would say that I came up with the idea of taking it seriously when I realized that it actually was really important, right? So, and that was a personal realization where you, you can... And maybe this is something that you also have personally experienced if you're running a company. So I, I'm actually in the middle of a startup at the moment as well. And oh, cool. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone, you know, startup of you or whatever. But uh, this actually is a, it's a, it's a legal startup, which we can discuss later if, if you want. But even before this, I think I came to the realization that there are many things that you can want, but there are some things that you are willing to give up and you're not willing to give up. And once it's actually much less important to understand what you supposedly want and much more important to understand what you're willing to give up completely. Right. And I think moving out here to France is part of that. I, I used to think, you know, for years, I thought that I was a, a city kid, that I would only be happy living in the city with people around. And over the course of the last, I, I don't know, like five or six years, I began to realize that maybe that's just what I think I want to be rather than what actually I am happy to be and a lot of that came from realizing i'm perfectly happy to sacrifice all the restaurants that i don't really like i'm perfectly happy to sacrifice all the you know supposedly the museums and cultural resources that you go to all the time i never go to them i mean i love art i, I love going to some places that are very carefully selected but most museums leave me completely cold um and the things which i am not willing to sacrifice i also realized are i'm not willing to sacrifice clean air, quiet, having enough space. And, and so when you think about the configuration of that, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice all these things that cities supposedly give you, which I don't care about. And I'm not willing to sacrifice all these things that you cannot get in cities. It becomes really clear what you should do. Move away, right? And so now I've done that. And I think actually it was not a bad decision. But the, I, I, I think couldn't the, agree more. And yeah, the, the rea I think the realization comes when you become honest with yourself about what you can and cannot do, can and cannot know, it is very much connected to the uncertainty mindset, right? Because there are yeah. things that we think we know about ourselves 
And then there are things that we realize we don't know yet that we need to learn. The moment you say, okay, there are these things that, that I don't know about even what I want. How do I figure it out? That's the beginning. That's, that's the reason why the mindset is so powerful. It's not that the mindset itself is powerful, even though I think it is. It's that when you have that mindset, it makes you do different things. It no longer makes you assume that you know how to do something or what you're trying to do. It makes you assume that you don't, and therefore you need to go figure it out. And when you go figure it out, maybe you learn something new. You, oft, you always learn something new. You always learn something that changes your mind. And that's what's so powerful about it. So that's how. Yeah, I mean, probably over the last 10 I years. I think that's... Yeah, and I think and I think to me what's what's really interesting about what you just said is that so much of it is a very human failure <laughs> in a oh, funny yeah. way, right? I think I think and of course it manifests itself in in teams and, and you know in, in restaurants because I think sometimes people forget that you know companies are run by human beings as well. <laughs> there's mm -hmm. there's there's naturally in, you know inbuilt organizational issues because of that, and I think. You know, if you if you if you break it down to a personal level, right? We yeah. we rarely have this conversation with ourselves, and I think at, mm -hmm. in times of crises and in times of of uh, you know personal trouble, if you want to call it that, you sort of sit down or f you're forced to rethink, you know, all yeah. the decisions you've made in life and oh, where man. you are. Yes, totally. And, and sometimes you're like, okay, maybe maybe this was not what I wanted, and maybe this is what I wanted, yeah. and I mean. I think before we talk about your startup, because I really want to, I want to learn more about that for sure. Um, that's that's you know back into sort of my world a little bit more. Um, I think I want to, I want to definitely. There was one thing which really stood out to me when you were saying something is that, you know, personally for me, uh, moving to Copenhagen, I moved to Copenhagen now, properly 2017, 18, but I was come visiting for uh, a couple a year or two before that. Uh, leaving Amsterdam, which was my base for a while, and London, I've lived in London as well. Um, yeah. Sort of having this crazy network of, of you know, friends and, and, and uh, drinking friends and friends that you see from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. <laughs> you know, all Indeed. these different types of people that you meet in your in your life. Yeah. Uh, you sort of leaving that, um, I don't want to say noise, but leaving that sort of 24-7 distraction and moving mm -hmm. to Copenhagen where uh, you've been here so you know the danes are not the most welcoming when you first meet them oh they, yeah they get sure. they get uh, they get warm as you as you know yeah. as they realize you're not running away as yeah. they realize you're here to stay um yeah. um but it was it was tough for me because I, I i sort of had to look inside a lot more and be mm -hmm. and sort of all these demons came out and i'm like okay wait well, i haven't thought about my career <laughs> what's happening why am i thinking about it now yeah, on this yeah, yeah. rainy yes. dark winter Absolutely. day <laughs> like what's Absolutely. going on yeah and and and, and i think sort of uh I, I i didn't think about it so eloquently as, as you have over the last decade but i think it was it kind of hit me like a brick like a ton of bricks sort of okay am i doing the right thing you know mm -hmm. is are these decisions to escape pain or to grow what's really happening <laughs> yes. here you know yeah. is it is it to kind of go and get a nice uh, i mean you know get get a drink that makes you numb your brain and i love drinking i love wine i love you know all that oh uh, yes and i think but i think there was this there was this sort of realization that i have been escaping pain for a long time i've been running away mm -hmm. from it uh and and I need to sort of go in the other direction a bit more because that's where the real growth lies to sort of, you know, and I think 
that's it's part of part of also why you know what i'm trying to do with the podcast and with everything else in my life now i'm I'm figuring it out i'm in the early stages of it is to go towards the uncertainty a bit more with the realization of kind of what do i want to give up you know what do i want to mm-hmm. give up what do i want what are, and then through that lens of um subtraction almost right finding yeah. out what what's left and that's exciting to see and I'm, i mean it's gonna be fun uh, I, i'm definitely gonna read the book uh for sure and and once i've digested it I w- i'll have you back on but sure. before that talk to me about your legal podcast uh, podcast fuck <laughs> your legal startup <laughs> um i Sorry. can't say a lot about it but what it basically is it's not really a startup in the conventional sense right like i, I think i think of it as a startup so it's not a startup in the sense that we're not building a platform or technology or a particular physical product or service but it is a it is a startup in the sense that we need to establish product market fit. Uh, we are developing a lot of IP as a result of figuring out what product market fit is, and there may be a payout. So all I can say about it is it's a litigation startup. So we basically are developing the IP that we're developing is a theory of how to bring lawsuits that make sense from a pro-social perspective, but also make a lot of money and how to identify the right capital to invest in these lawsuits so that we align incentives correctly. And awesome. I've been working on it with, uh, with actually with three partners now. We, we, we have a fourth partner now. We've been working on it for the last probably 18 months. Um, I would say that if you, if you ask me to put probabilities on success, it probably as a under 10% chance of being successful. So it's a true startup, right? Like probably Yeah, it sounds like a, it sounds like all of my startup. startups. <laughs> yeah. No, no, for, for sure. Don't get paid for 18 months. Um very very small chance of success. But it's super interesting. I mean, it, it's some of the most intellectually interesting work that I've done in my entire in my entire life actually. So super interesting stuff. I had to learn a lot I've basically read more regulatory law than I have ever read in the last 18 months. Um, and there may be some very significant pro-social benefits as well. I mean, you were talking about kind of the filter bubbles and echo chambers of modern social media. I think one of the consequences of what we do if we're successful is that we may we may be able to partly either stop or even maybe undo some of the damage um, that is being done in that way. So wow. I, I, I can't actually say more than that until no, no, I our get cases it. launch. Our, our cases will, I mean, if, if we're successful, one more case will launch very soon. And then, um, and then I'll be able to talk about it. And then you have to come on here first. I don't care if CNBC sure, calls or Vox or any of those assholes call you. You got to come on here first. I'm telling you now. <laughs> well, we, we, we actually, I mean, I, I'd be happy to do it. Um, we, are, we will not be well known even so because we always sit behind everyone else. Because we're, we're, we're not, if these things work, you will, bear, you will not know that we are behind it. But I'll be happy to tell you about it for sure. <laughs> but, but, that, but I think that's, that's, that's even more a reason why I want you on because I think sure. that's... Happy to. And I think that's kind of, <laughs> that to me, I think is the real, is the real sort of exciting part about building a real startup a real mm. company that that creates an uncertain future like that's kind of what it is yeah, in a way right totally, it's kind of absolutely you're, right you're you're 
and I think and I think Paul Graham, uh, the the startup yeah, uh, Yoda yeah. has has some great uh, has some great sayings of what startups are, and and, and yeah. you know he's everyone should go read his essays if you care about what a startup is. I but, totally agree. But to to me, I think in a very non uh, eloquent way, what startup, what a real startup, in my opinion, is is exactly this, right? If you succeed, yeah. then chance of then the chance of changing something is so big mm -hmm. that it's worth failing a hundred times over and i yeah, think that's for sure that's fun that's a, that's a fun uh journey to be on no matter what yeah yeah and and something you said i think i i 100 agree with which is if you are hoping to do something new which doesn't exist yet you have to imagine a future that doesn't yet exist and which may not exist And you have to also be willing to do something which you don't know how to do yet, which you may not be able to do, right? All of that is uncertainty, which means anyone who believes in or is ambitious to make new things needs to have the uncertainty mindset, right? You have to be willing to be in a, an uncertain place for there to be any hope of doing something new. Like if you don't want uncertainty, you cannot also realistically hope to do new things. It's just not possible, logically not possible. So I, I totally agree. And so, you know, I've I've worked on startup ideas in the past. Um, this is the only one that I've invested so much of my time and energy in uh, so far. Uh, and even so, as you know, with most startups, chances are very high that they don't work at all. So Yeah, we'll I, but I'm, I'm excited to I'm excited to follow follow your journey in on all fronts, right? On the yeah. on the on the tool game front, on the on your next yeah. book, uh, and of course the startup uh, sounds really really unique. I've never heard of another startup that's doing what you're doing, so that sounds it is really also weird. promising. <laughs> yeah, it's super strange. It's a business model uh, that doesn't, that literally we found does not exist anywhere else. So it's good, maybe. And I think that's already a good sign. So I wish you and your your uh, four partners now, three partners. How the, many? There's, there's four of us. I wish you, yeah. yeah, four. I wish all four of you a lot of success. And and whenever cool. you can talk about something, you're always invited back on to talk about it. Uh, um, I would love to. Yeah, and I think I want to wrap on um, cool. a slightly different note. Uh, you've been to Copenhagen a lot, right? Yeah, I have. It seems like you've been city. here for a while. Yeah. Um, give me some give me some food industry gossip because there's no I mean I, there is no I'm gossip. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, it's 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 just a joke. It's just a joke because I I, I ran into some fr food industry friends the other day and they were talking about like oh there's so much gossip in the food industry. I'm like I'm gonna ask Vaughn, the most intellectual guy I know, I know in the food industry, if he, if he um, has any gossip he wants to share on the pod. No, there's no gossip. I think what's interesting about Copenhagen is it. It is one of those, it is actually probably unusual. It is, to my knowledge anyway, it's unique in the world as a place where you can literally trace the kind of the gastronom the, the kind of international gastronomic character of Copenhagen um, back. The lineage is, is very clear because it's so recent, right? It's everything really that is, well, not okay. Everything is always too broad a, a term. Most of what has happened in Copenhagen gastronomically has happened in the last, I would say, 15 years, right? So before that, Copenhagen was always a beautiful city, very like, it was a nice place to be. And then suddenly it was also a place to come for food. 
And so that's, I mean, there is no gossip there. It's just that's what's interesting about Copenhagen. It, it is unusual in that sense because to go back to another city that had a similar dynamic, you would have to go to London and it would be decades ago, right? Where you could trace the origins of really interesting stuff coming out of, for instance, St. John. Uh, in Copenhagen, you've got more different restaurants. It's not, it isn't, it's definitely not just Noma. There's a bunch of other really creative chefs. There's a really interesting dynamic in the sense that Copenhagen is in a country, Denmark, which is small enough that the ambitious and interesting chefs knew each other pretty well. And for the most part were collaborators rather than hostile. And so there, there was something very special going on in Copenhagen. Um, and I think that results in the kind of restaurant community that that you experience because you you live there uh, i i actually really like it um and i liked it uh, so I, I haven't been there as much since probably 2015 or so like i was there much more between 2011 and 2015 and i i loved it when i was there back then um because it always felt like you it always felt like you could go into one of the places and you you know which ones they are, like Vitstranden or wherever. And there would always be people behind the bar that uh, you knew either quite well or at least enough. And people on the other side of the bar that you also know either quite well or enough. And there was no sort of sense that you had to hang out with them or not. But you would always be able to... It, it always felt like a real community that was across lots of different... Um, restaurants and bars and in london there are pockets of that but copenhagen really felt like the entire city was something like that which was really nice so no gossip also i'm far too diplomatic to be able to say anything that's true <laughs> gossip on something that's recorded no and i think <laughs> and, I, and i think and i think we'll probably talk about some stuff uh, when you visit and we go to we go to Vetstrand and have some nice mm, wine absolutely um, but but i think and i think what What's really fun about Copenhagen, I do, I do feel that very much, and and I I, I I'm I'm now in in my small private uh, locked away studio where I don't see any humans, <laughs> um, you know, in, in the meatpacking district, uh, yeah. and right next to one of my favorite cafes uh, in the world, uh, Prologue, yeah. and and mm -hmm. and I think what's really funny to me is that I run into. Uh, Bo, Beck, Brené, sure. and maybe three or four other really cool chefs all the time, just sure, standing yeah. in line to get coffee at, yeah. at at Prologue. And I'm good friends with Sebastian and and Jonas and Bo, the the owners um, yeah. and of, of 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 Prologue. And I think it's just it it is such a great community feeling. It really mm -hmm. it really feels unique. And I've lived in Paris. I've lived in London. Lived in Amsterdam. Uh, yeah. you know I, I've been to great restaurants great cafes there and you're right there is this feeling in pockets in, yeah. in a kind of cozy yeah. neighborhood maybe I, mm -hmm. I, used, I used to live in Shoreditch back back before it became super yeah, hipster yeah. it was early hipster you know kind of days <laughs> yeah. and you could kind of go into uh, you know any of those places and it felt like a kind of a good vibe you saw similar people mm -hmm. and I think and I think that is that is very it's a very nice feeling I can't wait for this fucking pandemic to finish so we can all yeah get vaccinated and kind of go back to some form of yeah of well, human things, connection things will again. be different but it would be nice to be able to i don't know hang out in person with people that i like in copenhagen again right like that yeah that's been impossible for a year so well maybe and, it'll and, come back yeah and and i will because i think part of also what 
I want to do with this show is not remote. The whole this is this is a yeah. temporary setup. Yes. I want to I want to sit down with people, open a nice yeah. bottle of wine, yeah, and totally. record a show and have a conversation yes. for 2-3 hours and like I agree. start with wine, end with whiskey, yeah. whatever. And yeah. I think and I think that's the whole point of what I want to try to do um yeah. And then I think and then because we're going to do it live and there'll be no editing then some some of your stuff might come out and you might be a little bit less diplomatic in maybe, those situations maybe. but in vino veritas. but maybe maybe not maybe <laughs> exactly. maybe not yeah exactly um, i yeah. um thank you so much uh Absolutely. it's been it's been super fun having you on and and um and i will link everything that you've mentioned um cool. that i remember and whatever's not on the show notes figure it out pause the podcast google whatever you know you guys can figure it out um, awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Vaughn, and sure. talk soon. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me.